Welcome to Rock Fat Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in our Hammersmith recording suite with Mark Pringle. <laughs> Hi, Barney, and Jasper Merson Bowie. Hello, Barney. There's nothing Hello, sweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> For this episode, we're joined by a legend of British music journalism, the one and only Norman Jopling. Welcome, Norman. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Record Mirror and the Rolling Stones, and we're going to hear clips from a terrific audio interview with the late Charlie Watts. But let's start, Norman, with how you fell in love with pop in the first place. Was there a, was there a formative musical moment in your childhood? Not particularly. Uh, I remember, I must have been about, I suppose, nine or ten, and I was given a wind-up gramophone with some old 78s, some of which I like very much. Ethel Smith, Tico, Tico, Very various nice. other sort of jazzy things. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, so that kind of turned me on to the rhythm. And I didn't get any other records then until probably, I must have been, I think when I was 14, I, uh, I sold my, my Triang train layout. And, uh, <laughs> and, I bought a, and I bought a little record player with, you know, and started buying 45s. And I bought... I think the first two albums I bought were The Chirping Crickets and Elvis's Golden Records, Volume 1. Not and nice. I bought some singles, bought a couple of oldie singles, Bebop, Alula and Diana, and a couple of current singles, which I think was an Everly Brothers thing, and uh, I can't remember the other one. But that was really how it started. But, of course, I've been listening to Radio Luxembourg for a, for a little while, and that turned me on to essentially American music because... Before that, it was two-way family favourites. If yeah, you heard yeah. anything decent on that, you know, you, you, you'd listen to it just for that, just for the odd rock and roll yeah, thing yeah, that would come absolutely. on. But uh, of course, as soon as you get onto Luxembourg, then you hear those wonderful sponsored programmes that the record companies would do, and of course, you would hear all the stuff that they were issuing. You'd hear you'd hear the obscure stuff as yeah. well as the hits. So it was a very good way of keeping up with new releases then. Yeah, absolutely. And then this position opens up at Record Mirror for, I mean, Office Boy, is that is that sort of under understating it a bit? I mean, was it an Office uh, Boy? No, no, it was, it was Office Boy. I mean, yeah. if you looked in the Evening Standard in those days, you would find column after column of junior vacancies for Office Boys. But I'd, I'd left school at 16 and my first job was at the Cambridge University Press in Euston Road. And it was a terrible, boring job. <laughs> and uh, you know, Kalamazoo Ledgers, it was Dickensian. And I used to, <laughs> at lunchtime, I used to walk up Tottenham Court Road or Gower Street to Soho, and I'd just sort of walk around and fell in love with Soho. And after about six months, I knew I couldn't stay at the Cambridge Press anymore. And I found this little place called Soho Youth Employment Agency, which was a... It was a branch of social services at that time. And I went up there and went through a load of jobs with them. And because I, I think I had three, three GCEs, and the three GC jobs were terrible, and the <laughs> two GC jobs were terrible. There was only one guy in this little room. And the one, and the one, you had to have the one GCE always had to be English language. And none of them were any good. And the guy said, oh, he said, I've got a couple of little jobs. I don't care whether you've got any GCs or not. And the first one was actually the best job so far. It was a, it was a factotum at a, a well-known MP's place in Savile Row. And I thought, well, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, great, great, you know, 
we'll send you for that one. I said, well, what's the other one? And he said, oh, he said, it's, oh, it's Office Boy Record and Show Mirror. And I, I felt like I won the pool <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Fantastic. And I said, that's the one I want. And, Lovely. of course, a day or so later, I went to see Record Mirror. I thought it would be like, you know, centre point, because I used to buy the pop papers at that time. And, uh, of course, it wasn't. It was just an apartment over... Uh, I think it was Drum City at the time, uh, <laughs> or Drum City may have been a bit later, but I thought, well, I got there. Isidore Green was the editor, and he said, oh, I'm really sorry, I should have taken that advert out months ago. <laughs> you know, we've, we've, we've already got an office boy. Oh, and I'm going, a moment. oh, dear. And, <laughs> I, and I thought, and I was thinking, this is my destiny. And no, it wasn't at that point. Uh, and he must have seen the expression on my face. He said, look, he said, the, the, he said, our office boy's leaving in, I don't know, a couple of months, something like that. He's getting a job with his father, photographer. I thought he was going to say, you know, I'll give you a call back. But he didn't. He said, you come up here every week on a Thursday and when he leaves, you can get the job and you can give your notice on the Friday. And that's what happened. So I went come up every Thursday. I'd go up and, you know, made friends with everybody and... Love, fell in love with the place. I felt like I sort of come home. Yeah, yeah. It was that feeling you get when you when you find somewhere that you really love to work in, and I knew I was going to love it there. So, come my seventeenth birthday, Izzy said to me, "Well, he said you can start after you've, you know, served out your week's notice." And I, that's what I did, and I got an extra. I got a quid for my extra for my birthday, <laughs> and five bob extra. So I was earning. Six quid a week, which was, you know, 1961, it's early good. 1961. It wasn't bad. None of my mates were earning that much. Were you living at home still? <laughs> I was, yes. I was still living at home. So, you know, I didn't have to worry about <laughs> all, all those things. <laughs> yeah. you know, rent, food, washing clothes. Yeah. So that, 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 that wage yeah. was really quite... Quite useful. Yeah. Oh, it was. It was very. It was. It was very. All went useful. on record, probably. Although you were getting free yeah. records. I guess. <laughs> well, not at that point, no. but uh, I soon was because they used to send. All the record companies would send the new releases through. They send a, uh, a list of all the new releases, and if you wanted them, they'd automatically send all the new releases anyway. But they'd also send another, another list, and you could tick it. When they would automatically send them, it would always be the demo 45s. But if you ticked it, they would then send another lot of the regular ones. Mm-hmm. So I used to tick this thing and get all the regular ones. Uh, in addition to the, you know, I'm, I was 17. You know, I was mad <laughs> yeah. about music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted all this stuff. So I think I'd been working there for about uh, doing the Office Boy stuff, you know, compiling the charts, making tea, deliveries on the van, oh, a yeah. whole bit. And um, it must have been about, let me see, started in, I think it was February, something like that, February, March. Of what? And what, was she, what year? 1961. Right. And round about, must have been about May or June, Ian Dove, who was the... Yeah, yeah. You know Ian Duff. Of course. Uh, he we, said... We have uh, him on Rocks Back Pages and devices. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh. yeah. He yeah. died, what, a couple of years ago? Yeah, I was, yeah. So, I was so upset about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because he was a real mentor too. Oh, he was. He was... Uh, uh, he said, you know... He said, he said, can you write? And I said, well, I was good at essays at school. <laughs> <laughs> and he said... Uh, he said try rewriting this. And he gave me this press handout. I couldn't make head or tail of it anyway. So I can't do that. And I was sort of thinking about it. And then... 
And then I wrote this little bit about... I used to read all the... I used to go and get all the papers every day for everybody. And I'd go to Solosis in Charing Cross Road. That was a terrific news agent, best in London. You know, I'd buy all the daily papers and all the mm-hmm. music papers and all the American music yeah. papers. So I used to read all these things. And I did this little thing. And I said, oh, I've got this little look at the US charts. And um, I used this and I thought, oh, that's great. But actually they sent me to a concert before to do a review. It was an Adam Faith concert. And it was a great concert because the fans were going crazy mm-hmm. for Adam Faith. And I wrote this and Ian looked at it and he completely rewrote the thing saying, oh, you know, the fa- how terrible the fans were and this was the worst thing since Bewley 1915-whatever. <laughs> and, and I read this afterwards and I thought, no, you know, but sure, that's the way to do it. You've got to have something to hang it on. You've, yeah, got, yeah. To have a, you've got to have a hook. <laughs> and, uh, and then I wrote another thing about crazy names of American groups because the, the American do-what revival... <laughs> We've got that piece on our BP, I'm delighted to say. That's great. Yeah, and that was... I wrote it out by hand, I gave that to Ian. And the next week, he typed it all out, hardly changed a thing, and it was on page three, and I thought, yes, that's it. With your byline. With my byline. With my byline. And I was... I was over the moon, yeah, and there was no stopping me after that. <laughs> no, so, so, no so, stopping yeah, me. Switch <laughs> question because you talked about what you first started listening to. When did black music become absolutely central? Because I mean, the, you, one of the things I mean, our great stack of record mirrors have got the name Wingfield written on the cover because Pete Wingfield mm-hmm. gave them to us because he was buying them when he was at school yeah, yeah. because it was the, the paper that covered black oh, yeah, music more yeah. than the other. Yes. You in particular doing that. Well, I first became aware of black music, I suppose, when I became aware of rock and roll. Right. And, you know, you, then you find out about Little Richard right. and Frankie Lyman and, uh, uh, and then, of course, Ray Charles. Yes. So that started to feel very interesting. And when I got to Record Mirror, uh, it, was, it was a time when what we call rock and roll in the UK had sort of more or less died out because of the the various things that had happened to this one and that one. And uh, it became obvious that rhythm and blues, if you like that excitement and that rhythm and and, and, and that was what turned you on, then we were all finding out that it was rhythm and blues. And not only was it rhythm and blues, but you had like 10 years of this music that nobody knew very much about. Well, I got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh, yeah. Say, I got a woman way over town. Good to me. And Ian had a column in Record and Show Mirror. No, Record. New Record Mirror. After Izzy left, they put in Jimmy Watson as editor, and Ian had a column in New Record Mirror. I think it was Rhythm and Blues Roundup, something like mm-hmm. that. First of all, under his name and then under a pen name. So I would read this. So it was Ian, really, that turned me on to Rhythm and Blues oh, right. in, a, in a more serious way. And then when I started to write, I did... Uh, 
they didn't let me interview anybody for a year because I was I was I was seventeen. I was they said I was too young. Too young to talk to people. Too young to talk to people. Yes, I wasn't sophisticated enough, I guess. But anyway, uh, so I'd write all these profile pieces and you know gimmicky little pieces and anything that came into my head. Really, yeah. you know why has why haven't the Shirelles had a hit this week? Kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> then I had an idea for a column called fallen idols where i could write about all my rock and roll favorites so i did that and then i all this time i'm getting more and more into into black music and rhythm and blues all through records incidentally and uh sort of by about 62 i'm finding out that there was a british rhythm and blues scene but getting back to the black yeah 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 then i started a column called fallen i and that was the one where i was able to profile all these great black, really current black pop sure. artists yes. that nobody um, was nobody was writing. You had about. some. You must have had some dealings with Guy Stevens at that time. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, he yeah, was writing. Yeah, yeah. Curiously, uh, he was doing what was very common then. Now would be regarded as fairly scandalous. Is that he was basically writing about artists he actually represented in real life in the paper because he was a record company man dealing with basically the chess catalogue, wasn't he? But was it Pyle? Well, yeah, Guy, Pyle. Guy mm. was. Guy came up because people used to come up to see me at record yeah, yeah. because it wasn't a big scene then. The rhythm uh, and blues sure. scene wasn't a big scene, and Guy came up to see me and very enthusiastic and, 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 and huge knowledge of the whole thing. I mean, yeah. ten times more than I knew. Yeah, yeah. And and we were friends and we would hang out. And then he came up and he got the gig at the Scene Club to do the R and B night on Monday. Right. And that led him to, I think he did an album for EMI that was... Uh, it was on the state, st- state yeah, side label, wasn't it? Yeah, it may well have been. And it was, uh, I'm trying to think of the American record label, Lazy Lester, uh, Slim oh, Excello, Hartwell, Excello, Excello, yes. Excello, it's stuff. Terrific album. And that brought him to the attention of Pi. And ah. of course, what Guy did, and of course, Pi had chess. And, That's right. You know, various other things. Of course, what that did with Guy was it, it, it. He showed that you could get hits from reissuing back catalogue. Yeah, mm, um, yeah, which was launched him really. In your wonderful book, Shake It Up, Baby, you write about these characters, and and some of them we have on RVP, which we're so thrilled about. So obviously, you know, we've got Peter Jones stuff, we've got Ian Dove stuff, Guy Stevens. Mm. You also, of course, talk about Bill Harry and Merseybeat, and you wrote one of the very earliest pieces on the Beatles. Just a short piece. You you mention that in Shake It Up Baby. Bill Harry then also corresponds mm. for for Record Mirror. So Record Mirror is really like quite early on on, on the scene with, with all of these Yes, yes. All of these phenomena, right? Yeah. Well we didn't have the staff that NME right. or Melody Maker had mm. because we were the only independent I think Ian left around the end of 62 and so there was just really Peter Jones, myself and I don't think he had, we had anybody else. We were just using a whole no bunch of No one else freelan- writing regularly. No, just, no, sort of just a whole bunch of freelancers we'd use mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. different parts of the country. Sure. You know, Birmingham beat and because you know, the, the whole beat thing was But going. I mean, the, the paper had a real identity. I mean, of course, I was completely, I was A, too young to be reading it then. And, you know, I'm the melody maker slash enemy generation mm. of readers in a way. But I find it fascinating now because it has a clearer, non, not strictly chart pop identity than any of the other ink is. 
partly because of your writing significant amount about black music, which really wasn't sort of happening anywhere else, I don't think, at the time. No. I mean, the Melody Maker talks about, wrote about jazz, obviously. Oh, yeah. But they didn't write about R&B much at all. Uh, enemy neither so it's it's very interesting Re- look, looking reading the record mirror now it's got such a strong and interesting identity as to mention pete wingfield by it mm. for him it was you know, as, as a soul boy at public school mm. in 1964 or yeah. whatever sort of stuff it was gold dust what, yeah what you were doing there i mean we're going to talk about the rhythm and blues scene we're going to talk about the rolling or rolling stones <laughs> <laughs> when you came into this world and, and before you were aware of the rolling stones what did you know about rhythm and blues in terms of going back to like Chris Barber and of course the um, Alexis Corners Ealing Blues Club which opened in I think March 62 and then you see the Stones for the first time in early 63. Mm. So did, were you aware of, of the, the backdrop to what became this extraordinary... Oh, yes, yes. yes, yes you yes. knew about Chris Barber. Yes, I was. I used to go down to the marquee yeah. and yeah. Uh, check out uh, Alexis. But the problem that I had was I was, a, I was I was such a purist for American rhythm and blues <laughs> that I appreciated what they were doing down there, but it didn't move me. No, sure. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's... It, it seemed sort of worthy. And I felt a bit guilty. And Long John Baldry used to say, why aren't you writing about us, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And I, but I couldn't bring myself to write about it because I didn't... It just wasn't doing anything for me. I wished it had have done, but it sure. didn't. Yes. So I couldn't really write about it. And really, that was my attitude until I saw the Rolling Stones. Yes. And you, you were re- reluctant to actually go to Richmond to see Oh, them. I was really reluctant. Yes. <laughs> so what happened? Well, what happened was uh, Giorgio, Giorgio Gamolski was... Uh, well, Peter Jones used to hold court at a pub, Dehams, just around the corner from Record Mirror. And it was... Uh, of course, because what he could provide was column inches. So, of course, all the publicists and the managers and the agents would be there and Peter would hold court. And Giorgio had been pestering Peter, pestering him to go down to Richmond. And Peter never went anywhere. I mean, it was Record Mirror, Dehems, and that was it, and back home. Uh, <laughs> but for some reason, Giorgio was so persuasive that he managed to get Peter to go down to Richmond to see the Rolling Stones. He'll never knew what an accomplishment that was, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, so P- Peter came back and he said to me, he said, oh, I said, he said, he said, I've got to get George off my back. He said, he said, will you write about them? And I said, well, no, Pete, because they're British rhythm and blues and they'll be useless. <laughs> <laughs> Principal stuff. And yeah, and, and so this, this sort of to and fro for a while uh, and eventually Peter said oh well he says I, I suppose I'll have to write about them now Peter didn't like rhythm and blues he, he, he was he, he was sort of showbiz pop yeah, yeah. kind of thing Old school. And, and he said you're supposed to be the rhythm and blues man and I thought <laughs> oh, right so I said alright I'll go see him so I booked Bill Williams who was a photographer and uh, went down there with my girlfriend and we got there and it was we got we were a bit late, and there was a big crowd outside that couldn't get in. So we you know elbowed our way to the front, press cards, cameras. Giorgio sort of oh, <laughs> and he saw it was us, dragged us in, pushed us into this room, and bam, 
they were playing it was it was a Bo Diddley beat so I would imagine the song was mine I was completely overwhelmed by this and then it went on one thing after another and I'd never heard anything this good I mean I'd seen you know this was two years after I joined Record Mirror mm-hmm. and I'd seen a lot of artists American artists British artists and I'd never seen or felt anything this good wow Re- huh. really and I remember thinking to myself we can do it white people can do it <laughs> I, 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 I remember that very thought I mean, maybe white people never could do it any better than that than they ever than they <laughs> did it. That was then. as good as it got. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, that's what I thought. Anyway, the you know it stopped. You know, the band was packing up, and you know, Giorgio was you know glad handing me and all the rest of it. Bill Williams split with the photographs, and uh, they all came down from the stage, and I was introduced to them. And Brian, Brian was. Brian did seem to be the leader at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He really did seem to be the leader, and he was the most talkative one. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. I know we were chatting away, and he said, uh, what can you do for us? And, you know, well, really, anything you want, actually. <laughs> uh, and then we went off to some producer's place. Uh, I think a f- film producer, friend of Giorgio's, and uh, we were just hanging around there for the rest of the, you know, half the night and, and of course there were six of them there, yeah, yeah. as you know yes. yeah, yeah. and you know everybody you know, they were all picking up instruments even Mick and you know playing this that and the yeah, other yeah. you know just as a very casual thing and I was chatting to Keith and to uh, Keith and to Charlie yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember talking to Keith we were talking about the uh, the latest Mary Wells record that we yeah. you know the kind of conversations yeah, that yeah, you would have cool. there mm. of course, of course. and uh, we were we were both very disappointed yeah. that Laughing Boy wasn't any good <laughs> <laughs> and hoping that uh, your old standby would be better which of course it was <laughs> uh, so uh, and then you know and of uh, course uh, Andrew Oldham wrote your piece and went down the following week well, having read your piece well what happened mm. what happened then was I got back to Record Mirror and it couldn't go in the next edition because the photographs wouldn't have been ready and I would have had to have written it. And I had this feeling that it was an important thing to write. Right. And for one, for one thing, it was the first article in Record Mirror that, that had been about uh, an act that did not have a record. Right. So they didn't have a record. So, and I had to get permission from Jimmy Watson, the editor, to, to run this thing. But, of course, you know, Peter was, Peter was on side. Mm-hmm. So, if I, only to sh- to get Giorgio Gamelsky off his back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so, I wrote the article. In the meantime, before it appeared, I think it must have been the the issue after the next issue. Mm-hmm. Of course, Peter is down at uh, Dehems again. You know, uh, everybody's around him, and Andrew Oldham, who at that point was a PR, had his own PR company, and was. And was, uh, I think his main client was Mark Winter, actually, right. at that point. And Peter, he was obviously pestering Peter for, the, for these column inches for Mark. <laughs> and Peter said, look, why don't, you, uh, why don't you go and check out the Rolling Stones? He said, uh, he said, they're down at Richmond, he said, and they're really good. And Norm's writing an article about them. It's going to appear next week. And, uh, you know, nobody's heard of them now. But when the article appears, everybody will have heard of them. So ah. Andrew, being a shrewdy, to put it mildly, uh, <laughs> went to 
went went to Richmond and the rest, you know, as yeah. they say, <laughs> is history. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, sure. And yeah. Uh, that was that was that. Yeah. And, I mean, I live quite near Richmond so I often walk past where the station hotel and the oh, Crawdaddy really? Ho- oh. yeah, Club was so I, mean, I always I think my god you know it all started here just such a sort of the beginning yeah. of kind of British you know, rock just, as we know it you know someone put a book out yeah. recently it's called a, Raving Upon Thames that's right it was a, <laughs> and it's all about just having yes. that one small you know, but you know you've got Eel Pie Island as well we've got sort of extraordinary yeah. concentration of places where those bands were, yeah. were playing yeah. yeah I mean in addition to the pieces by you that we're featuring including of course the, the famous genuine R&B piece from the 11th of May 63 I've also added this piece John Pigeon wrote for Let It Rock in 1973 10 years later he's oh, yeah. looking back on the R&B scene in, in London and the South East and uh, he, he mentions all all the great venues and it's a fa- fascinating kind of retrospective I just wanted to quote from uh, rereading this piece you know the, you, you, you say that like three months ago which would be kind of I guess January or February only 50 people were turning up to see the Stones at the Station Hotel and now it's like 400 mm. trying, to, trying to get in and there's, there's a quote I love at the end and you say they say so I don't know who who's actually saying this it's probably Brian but you say boys do not use original material after all can you imagine a British composed R&B number it just wouldn't make it (laughs) 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 of course Oldham um, you know when the first album comes out there is this one Jagger Richard song Tell Me which is not rhythm and blues at all but Oldham kind of could see where Lennon mm. McCartney were going and and so he's like you guys have got to start you've got to start writing you know, he literally hands yeah. Keith a, an acoustic I mean, it's like, go sit in that room don't come out till you've written a for song for very good financial reasons because yeah. publishing is such a big chunk of the income you get as a band or whatever you know, yeah so. yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, how how, how much are Jagger and Richards worth today? Well, 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 well Andrew <laughs> Oldham would clearly have liked his 20% of that chunk of the pie, wouldn't yes. he? <laughs> yes. You also mentioned, of course, the Beatles had, two or three weeks before you went, the Beatles had checked out yeah. Stones at yeah. the Cool Daddy Club and, and were already championing oh, yeah. them. And so... The next piece that, that we're on is, is, is like a year later, and it's about the Yardbirds who took over the Stones' mm-hmm. residency. So that, that's really interesting as well. And in your book, you talk about when I think Guy Stevens brings a 19 year old oh, yeah. Eric Clapton to the record mirror offices, and you take an instant dislike to him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Well, the thing was that he, uh, uh, guy was guy was bringing people up to Record Mirror and, and uh, you know, yeah, rhythm and blues fans, and he came up one Saturday with a few people, and Eric was with him, and Eric was Eric looked terrific. He, uh, I can't remember what he was wearing. I think it was, I think it was probably one of those one of those jackets from Austin's in Charlotte. He's very fashionable. He was a proper and, mod, wasn't he? And, yeah, he's a top and, face. And he looked, he looked, he looked really good, and I was into clothes in a big way too. And I, and Regumer, it's like a small, it's just a small apartment. And I, and for some reason, I kind of took exception to Eric being there. And, and I was, and, and I thought, oh, you know, and I didn't like this guy. Anyway, afterwards, I felt quite ashamed of myself for this. And uh, a few weeks after that, 
I was down at the scene club and I don't know who Eric was playing with. It might have been, was he with the Roosters or Casey Jones? It might have been the Roosters. One of those or both, I don't know. Mm. And uh, he'd missed his last thing home and I thought, well, you know, I've kind of got to... I mean, I wasn't personally hostile to him in person, but that was just the way I felt. Uh, (laughs) uh, And afterwards, you know, I thought, what the fuck was that all about? And so I said to, oh, I'll give you a lift, Eric. You know, I'll take you back to where you are because I had a scooter on a Vespa mm. GS then. And uh, I, I drove him back to somewhere in South London. And I think I might have done that a couple of times, yeah. actually. Yeah. So this sort of, you know, negated my hostility, as it were. And, uh, <laughs> I felt that I sort of made up for it. Uh, but I don't ever remember meeting Eric after that. Oh, really? Okay. I don't. I, don't okay. I might have done, but I... I don't think I even interviewed him for that article. I mean, I read the article the other day and it reads like a, a subbed press handout to me. It's a pretty terrible article. <laughs> uh, the only thing that I added to it was the fact that the Telegraph had called them the yardsticks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. At the end of the piece, you spell out. I spelled in it out. Capital letters, yeah. yes. yard, bird. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. yeah. 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 Very but, uh, funny. I think that was the only thing that I really added to it. But uh, the rest of it I must have got from Georgia. Yeah. I think it's probably a favour to Georgia anyway, because I, okay. I don't ever remember seeing the Yardbirds until, shame on me, the, the time I remember really seeing them was in 66 when right. they were at the Albert Hall supporting... The, they were on a, on a bill with the Stones and I Contina. Right. And it was a fantastic and show. Jimmy Page, presumably, in the band at that point. No, I no, think no. it was... Jeff no, Beck. Jeff, Jeff Beck, yeah. But did, didn't, didn't Jimmy play bass in, in the Albert's? In, in, maybe it was 67 he joined. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah it was his bass, right, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it must have been amazing. Well, Beck must have been well, the, the, supernatural. I mean, the Yardbirds were terrific. Yeah. I mean, they were really terrific. Yeah. yeah. And I can Tina out of this world. Yeah, yeah. So I thought the Stones are never going to be able to follow this, but they did. Because, of course, the Beatles had retired from right, the, course, a few months yes. previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Stones just rocked the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Yardbirds, yeah. really, dear old Keith Ralph was not a strong lead singer. I mean, if they'd had a strong lead singer, could they have got close to, let's say, the Stones in terms of... I don't think so, don't no. Think so. No, no. I mean, Keith had an edge to him, though. There was a nice vocal edge to him. Sure. So you wrote for Record Mirror right up until 68, and you did then come back in various oh, capacities, yeah. but you, you actually left the staff job in 68. But in that time, I mean, you interviewed just everybody, and and there are excerpts from those pieces in your book, which, which are great, and some of them we have on RBP. Mm-hmm. And so you, you know, you, you were very, very, you know, close to what was happening and how music was changing and i mean so much change if you think about where the stones went from 1960 you know to let's say when they were first playing to 1968 beggar's banquet i mean they Mm. they change so much in that time don't they and so does music journalism so i mean how do you remember that very concentrated period where all the rules were being torn up everyone was experimenting writing their own material how do you look back on that 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 the 60s at that that well yes it was it was quick it was all happening Mm. quick because nobody nobody knew it was going to last so 
you had, I mean, 63 was really the year of Mersey beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, 64 was when it went global. Mm-hmm. And really, that's sort of when the, the really big changes happened, I guess, because a lot of American money was coming in at that point. And to a certain extent, that sort of divorced a lot of artists from the press and just all the hangers-on. Yeah, yeah. That's what happens with money. And, of course, and then, I guess a year or so later, drugs came into it, yeah. which accelerated the whole the whole change, sure. the whole musical change. And uh, so the whole, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinating, actually. Absolutely fascinating. What do you make of the, the nascent underground scene? Do you, was it, do you go to UFO and places like that at all to see people play? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, now and then, but I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I used to drink a lot, mm-hmm. but I never took speed right. uh, at that point. And Which made you almost unique in the sort of London rock and roll well, scene. I well, guess. I think probably, yeah, yeah, but I never, uh, I was never, I didn't smoke cigarettes, you see, right. so, so, so I wasn't into, into smoking dope. Yeah. In fact, the first, the, the first thing I ever took was, uh, was LSD. Oh, really? Yeah, That's yeah. That's about yeah, an entry yeah, into yeah, yeah, I jumped in the deep end, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, and of course, you take that, and of course, your whole outlook yeah. completely, completely changed. But of course, you do realise what else is going on, and what mm. ha- and what have been going on for the last. Well, I took it, you know, summer, summer of love, sixty-seven. Mm-hmm. So you realise what have been going on for the last couple of years. That you know, you could see all the effects and everything. Yeah, but you sure. didn't quite know. You didn't quite know what was at the core of this That's, thing. It's, it's very interesting. Around sort of sixty-six. Interestingly, in the pop press, there are a lot of people saying, is British pop over? There's this kind of curious sense. And we got this interview, Dawn James interviewing uh, Steve Marriott, I think 66, maybe early 66, 66 for Rave. And she's saying, is British pop dead? Which I, I've, read, I've read this a lot. And he's saying, no. And what he's aware of, he's aware of that people started to make albums rather than making singles. And there is a sort of change, which obviously the Revolver and Rubber Soul particularly sort of blew that door mm. open. But Marit's aware of it. Dawn James, as a journalist, isn't terribly. Mm. And so it's really interesting. It's a little, it's a little glimpse there that Marit is aware that there's, there's this new yeah, mood yeah. kind of happening. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about a, a sort of parallel kind of transition in a way. It's like the transition from you know, R&B into soul. You know, that, that, mm. that word's comes into the sort of lexicon and the third of the pieces by you that we're featuring is an interview you did with Aretha Franklin Mm. in spring of 1968 and she says she never expected I never loved a man to become a hit although she but she says she knew respect would be a hit Um, (laughs) but she talks about her period on Columbia she talks obviously about how Atlantic has changed all of that so you were still you were writing quite a lot still about oh, yeah. American music, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, right, yeah. right the way through, yes, I guess, into, yes. into the 70s, in fact. How do you remember Aretha as, as, a, as a person I thought she, there was something mysterious about her. She chose her words carefully. and With uh, Ted White lurking in the background. Well, Ted, Ted and... They seemed to get on very well. Okay. Mm. They seemed to get on very well. And Ted came across as a very nice guy, mm-hmm. nice, enthusiastic guy. I don't know what happened later, but... This was her husband and manager for yeah, any listeners yeah. who not sure. Yeah. I think there'd been a lot of crap went on later, but I, but then they were they were a couple. Right. They were definitely a couple. 
and she was if she you know if i think i asked her a couple of things and she would just smile and not answer me Mm -hmm. Uh, but generally she was generally she was good i thought a couple of things that she said were were really interesting because i expected her to sort of you know maybe maybe did the columbia period but she didn't Mm -hmm. at all and neither did ted they Mm -hmm. Apparently, Columbia had given her a head when it came to whatever she wanted to record. So she yeah. was she was okay about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last piece is this Hendrix interview that you did, which was for Music Now magazine. Mm. Which, so you wrote that in. You were one of the last people to interview Jimmy, of course. So it's 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 poignant uh, to read this. He says, "I wish, it, I think it'd be better if I'd gone to the Isle of Wight and mingled, took a sleeping bag with me, and mixed with the crowd because he's quite. He's clearly quite yeah. nervous about yeah. the oh, Isle was, of Wight yeah, and what yeah, yeah. you know the." the yeah, he was quite daunted by, mm. by this festival. And he, you ask him about his new recording studio, which you call Electric Ladyland at that point. Well, understandably, because that was the name of the album yeah. that had come out. But so this is, this is September what, 17th. What was the name of the studio? It was just Electric Lady, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Oh, Electric, Electric Lady. Lady. It was oh, so Electric Electric Lady. Lady. a lot of people well, called Electric Lady Ladyland. Ladyland. Yeah. I finally know. Sub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but I mean, we've got uh, Keith Altham's audio interview with with. Jimmy on the side. Well, she reckons which, it's the very last interview that Jimmy did. may have been the very I mean, I don't know whether Keith was sort of at the end of the cube. Obviously, Jimmy's at the Londonry Hotel and there are a number of people mm. interviewing him. But you knew Keith Alton at that point, oh, I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah. yeah, of course. He'd been doing it, all, Jimmy had been doing it all day. But yeah, I think yeah. we were the last ones. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> me, and, uh, me and Rob Partridge. Rob Partridge, right. Yes. We, we, we kind of did a... We kind of did a joint interview, yeah, yeah. as it were, mm. which was nice because I like Rob, you know, bless yes. him. Yeah. Hendrix was terrific. I mean, he looked wonderful. He mm. looked really in shape, really in shape, very graceful, Yeah, pretty good interview, you know, he was talking. And yeah. he wanted us to hang around afterwards. He wasn't drugging at all. No. And, uh, you know, white wine, pouring white wine, yeah. chilled white wine. and uh, Such sets. But I had to get back for... For, for a deadline and so yeah. did uh, and so did Rob and you know and then of course a week or so later whenever it was yeah that's right. I was all fuck it wish I'd hang around there yeah, yeah, yeah. just yeah. would have been so nice yeah. I'm really glad you, you know that you say what everyone I know has met him says I mean Keith was very fond of Jimmy is I mean Nancy Lewis when she took me for tea once and oh. she, she said oh Jimmy was a doll you know, I mean, you know, uh, everyone. He apparently is just a really very nice, mm. nice. That was the impression you. Yeah, had, a lovely, yeah. a lovely vibe. And, yeah, and yeah. Just gorgeous. Yeah. It's and a genius. One. And a genius. <laughs> Angel came down from heaven yesterday. She stayed with me just long enough to rescue me. How do you feel? How do, how do you look back on? Having kind of been there at all these pivotal moments, like the first, you know, in, in your piece about the Rolling, the Rolling Stones, as they were, you, you're sort of saying, you know, these guys are going to be big, and obviously you were spot on, and you know, you, you interviewed the Beatles early on, and, and being there with Jimi Hendrix. How do you kind of look back overall on that period? I feel I was the sort of the zelig of pop at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah. The, 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 I'm kind of, you know, 
if you had a photograph of him, my face would sort of be in a corner. <laughs> There's a great passage in, in your book where you sort of say you, you feel like a character in a play which is being acted out in the real world, that you've somehow been plucked from your dreary working-class suburban origins and deposited in the middle of pop music heaven and allocated a small but groovy part writing for Record Mirror during the 60s. Yeah, that was exactly the revolution. way I felt about it's it. It's just such a lovely way of thinking about it. But I got that feeling, really, at the, at the interview, that feeling came over me at the interview for the job yeah and i remember i was waiting and i suddenly had this feeling and it's one of those it's one of those things that you normally only get on drugs but it was uh <laughs> i suddenly woke up to this thing and then I, I had this feeling and i and i really didn't lose that for a very long Fantastic. time That's and I, I just felt i'm a character in a play and it's like uh and it just seems so yeah that's yeah. brilliant. That's, it's it's really hard, brilliant. To, hard to describe. But I love the fact you you were kind of aware of that because for a lot yeah. of people, really interesting stuff happens. They weren't even bloody aware of it till sort of five years later. I just love the sense that you sort of. Well, yeah. it was the contrast yeah. between between where I'd come from yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the record mirror, which was which was kind of slightly louche, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, and I'd come from you know, I mean, nothing wrong in my home life, but it was nothing like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, I had that feeling really throughout most of that time. So I did appreciate it. That's great. That's great. That's just super. Yeah. Shall we go back to the Rolling Stones and (laughs) talk about, because obviously this year, you know, one of the the, the major losses in rock and roll was the the loss of, of Charlie Watts, who we all adored and without whom I'm not sure the Rolling Stones are exactly the same thing. Um, we happened to receive uh, a couple of tapes from um, one of our writers, Robin Eggar, who used to write for the Sunday Times. He said, I've got this Charlie Watts audio interview. Um, you know, are you interested? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was, oh, you know what? Um, I suppose so. I, I, yeah, yeah, all right, all right, send them. So I'm going to hand over to Mark yeah. to tell us about well, it. Well, this is September 97. They're about to launch on the Bridges to Babylon tour. That's basically the, the framework of this interview, but it's 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 very very wide ranging. And I mean, he, be, he starts off by talking about getting married to Shirley, and which I really like. The very first thing he talks about is getting married to Shirley, in the light of other people that they're talking about. He talks about getting to jazz as a kid, his kind of London youth being kept sane by Shirley. I mean, this is a very rare thing. Someone marries at that age in rock and roll and stays married to them. Through, throughout the rest of their, their, their entire life. Is, is, Isn't is, there a sort of funny thing, like, in some article about the Stones, they've tabulated how many sexual yes. partners each of the members <laughs> had, and it kind of goes, it starts <laughs> with, starts with yeah. Bill Wyman, yeah. yeah. five thousand, and, <laughs> and, then, and then down to Charlie Watts. One. One. <laughs> it's fabulous. It's great. And, and he talks about keeping separation between his rock and roll life and his somewhat arty home life which which I, I really like uh, he does actually mention Bill's fondness for women <laughs> he in, does, in yeah. an interview that he feels that Bill sort of feels he doesn't really want to sleep alone mm. so, so there's always got to be someone there just to help him sleep and oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because this is the first clip he talks about the Stones then and now like then being back in 63 Charlie's good tonight isn't he? What I do is I play in a very good band, um, but they're kind of special when they're, when they're all together. What it is, I don't know. It always has been. When we were kids, you know, there'd be 30 bands, but 
for some reason, when Brian and Keith and Mick were there, it was different. Hmm. Is I it mean, big? I used to play in about four bands when I joined the Rolling Stones, you know, like most of us did, you know, it was like a couple of blues bands and a couple of jazz sort of thing. So it was like another band, you know, but they were special even in those days. By that I mean there were ten people in the club instead of four to see the, whoever <laughs> yeah, played yeah. the saxophone. Yeah. And very soon it was twenty, thirties, and so people, and as the years have gone on, you know, something does happen when we get together. It's very strange. Yeah, I mean, for, well, first of all, Norman, he absolutely can echoes what you were saying. There was something special. Oh, yeah. Very, very early on. Uh, and also, there's obviously his fondness for the band at this point, still in 1997. Mm. I, was, I was reminded, maybe in John Pigeon's piece, maybe in your book, that Charlie was the drummer on the opening night of Alexis Corner's Ealing Blues Club. Really? But with another band? Yes. How interesting. Yeah, well, he, the, that, I guess, was, like, Blues Incorporated, as it was at that point. But yeah. Charles Watts was the drummer. Charles Watts. <laughs> <laughs> so he really was there at, at kind of ground zero. Yeah, yeah. Goes I in mean, the suits. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a guy working in graphic design, so he's part of that sort of central London scene of being a designer and going to the jazz clubs, playing jazz and so on and so forth. Uh, he, he talks about maintaining his marriage, keeping horses and his Lagonda and so like that. Talks about his love of Stravinsky, Picasso and Duke Ellington. Becoming a drummer, buying records at Dobell's. Ma- Ma- uh, Martin, our colleague on Rock's Back Pages, his dad is Bill Collier and they, he lives on Charing Cross Road and yeah. Martin worked in the, the mail room of Dobell's when I knew him at art school back then in that basement. His passion for clothes. I mean, he goes... He, ta- he actually takes... Robin Edgar into, into his wardrobe. Into his wardrobe. Amazing. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, 500 suits and so on. <laughs> so um, Talks about where he gets them made and who tailors them and this and that. And it's quite but fun. he really cares yeah, about he really it. really does. You, you were talking about Eric Clapton in Well Dressed and you like, like in clothes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it was quite a significant thing. You know, if you could afford it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you could go to Carnaby Street or wherever it was and you know, the, the mod shops. Charlie Watts' case, much higher end sort of designers and so on and so forth. Mm. But it's important that. Talks about touring with the Stones, just the nature of that. Let's have another clip. It's about not being impressed by fame. I've never really been very impressed with all this thing, you know, what I've been what people think I have become or, or what over years you know I, I was always in total admiration of people like Jimmy Duker and Tubby Hayes you know and Monty Scott and, uh, and my wife was a sculptor so we kind of had a came from a funny area to suddenly be flung into this pop culture thing if you like and it, it came very big in the 60s on, even from the art side you know so I suppose we're both, my wife and I, are very cynical of the sort of things. Because, you know... Probably keeps you sane, doesn't it? She keeps me, has kept myself very sane, yes. Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I, I, I just love the way he talks about Shirley. I have to say, it's 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 just a really nice quality throughout this interview. He talks about his lost, his fairly brief lost years of drink and drugs. What he can talk about his midlife crisis. The last person you'd imagine getting to heroin, Charlie Watts, and the fact that he did was kind of. I real. remember being so shocked when I heard that. Yeah. We didn't really know about it until yeah. after the fact. Yeah, yeah. I think. I think that, it, was, it was quite short. I think it's like three years or something. I think, in I think he says like 83 to 86. Whatever something it was. Like like that. I, I can't remember. Yeah. Long enough. You've listened to the whole interview, <laughs> yeah, haven't you? Yeah. And I think you said you enjoyed it. Oh, very much. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the stuff about clothes. I was figuring <laughs> out how many suits he must have bought per year yeah. since he first started earning decent money. It's just, just fact, fantastic. You know, three or four. So I mean, it was quite a lot of yeah. suits to buy yes I mean lucky know, it, fella it, yeah <laughs> and, and it's also I remember when I you went to that really terrible gig in 1976 at Earl's Court one of the lesser I goods. saw two of those nights yeah I, I remember there's a stage folded clothes at the end of the night him sort of like chewing gum putting the sticks down like a worker clocking off yeah. <laughs> it really had that vibe yeah. about yeah, yeah, it yeah 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 talks about being a grandfather drawing his hotel rooms. He talks about books he and Shirley read, and I just have this vision of the pair of them in bed, sort of both reading books in their 50s and 60s. I loved that, actually. (laughs) That was really nice. Making the new album... And he talks about his qualities as a drummer. And it, it, we'll, we'll, we'll hear a clip about the midlife crisis and the heroin stuff at, at the end of the, the, the podcast. But yeah, I, I loved listening to this. I thought it was terrific. Yeah. I mean, when Charlie died, it really felt like, you know, the last time I felt like that was, was, was with, with Bowie, that I'd sort of lost someone. Obviously, mm. I didn't know Charlie yeah. once, but it felt almost like a personal loss. And having been a Stones fan from, like, day one, I couldn't... It was the sort of Charlie will always be there somehow. You know, it's like Keith will always be there. Of course, they won't always be there. But he was such. I mean, maybe just to talk a little bit about his his drumming. We did we did talk about it a bit just after he died. But just to return to that scene, I mean, I just wanted to. There are a couple of things in the new Mojo where David Frick is talking to Mick and Keith about them, and Mick says Charlie gave a swing to the band, mm-hmm. the swerve and subtlety, and Keith says Charlie Watts was my bed. I could lay on there, and I know that not only would I have a good sleep, I'd wake up and it would still be rocking. Charles Corey Bradley was falling asleep because yeah. he's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, did you ever like talk to to Charlie? Did you interview him, or was it mainly like Brian or Michael Keith? Or- Chatted with him the first Chatted time. Him, yes, never interviewed him. Mm. No, no, I only ever interviewed Mick and Brian and. I don't know whether, whether I even interviewed Keith. I can't really remember mm. now, to be honest. Mm. And he was kind of a jazz drummer, yeah, in, mm. in to all intents and purposes. And what what was your view on jazz at that time? Were you listening to much jazz? Or was it really more about the rhythm and blues? Well, it was really more about the rhythm and blues. Um, of course, which, which, which at certain points, you know, would yeah. shade into... Sure. Because after a while you get into, you know, Louis Jordan and then that takes you... That, that can take you into jazz quite mm. easily. But no, I didn't really get into jazz yeah. until probably... I suppose when I stopped being interested in pop music, which was about the mid eighties, <laughs> um, funny uh, that. <laughs> and uh, then I then I just started to listen to a lot more jazz. I started to go back, listen to music of the forties yeah. and the thirties, because yeah. yeah. you know sort of hip hop was taken over from. Sure, it's great yeah. to hear him talking about you know liking Duke Ellington and as you said Stravinsky. And it's, it's you know he really does care very deeply about that 
whole history yeah. and that you can hear that in his playing I think I mean you yeah. know he, he reminds me a bit of some of the people who taught me at art school in the 70s these people who'd be probably around his age mm. and they're sort of self-taught culturally self-taught people who, who, who often from working class backgrounds who have maybe gone to art school maybe not but, yeah. but they had sort of sought out stuff which was exciting and different from mainstream stuff which was like Stravinsky yeah. and or Duke Ellington, and he really reminds me of that as a yes. person. He, he's he's culturally in that sort of slot. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it would be interesting to think about the Stones with a very different kind of drummer, and, and would they have been the same group at all, really, hmm. without Charlie's style, which was always subtle, and he didn't hit hmm. the drums hard. He did swing that jazz feel was there. I mean, if you imagine the Stones with, I don't know, like. Ginger Baker or Keith Moon or John Bonham. I mean, it, it just no. it wouldn't have no. worked no. at no, all. I mean, it's partly because of the nature of Keith Richards' guitar. Exactly. Um, That's Keith, where the rhythm is really generated. Really, it comes from yeah. Keith Richards, yeah. and in a way that that Keith needed someone who gave him that sort of space, space and swing to, to sort of play, play, yeah, play I on think top. That's of. Right. I think if you had a John Bonham, it'd just like killed the rhythm yeah. guitar parts, having a massive snare backbeat snare. I think that's that. absolutely right. But he's so lovely in this interview. It yeah. was a joy to listen to. So unpretentious and, and as he says, so unimpressed by all the, the kind of circus around, you know, particularly Mick. Yeah. So there's that, that famous a... story of him punching Mick. To say, well, I want, where's my drummer? And he'd come, he'd got dressed, he's in bed. Mick had rung him up. So he goes, where's my drummer? And Charlie got up, got dressed immaculately, went downstairs and punched him in the face cold cocked him cold cocked him I mean I wish Robin had asked him if that was a true story I mean it's it's yeah I, I hope it's a true story <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> anyway um, in addition Mick yeah. Yeah. But also I love the idea yeah. of him getting dressed immaculately to go down and do this so yes. that's Charlie isn't yes it? <laughs> completely completely so uh, in addition to Charlie Watts, we, we've obviously lost a lot, a lot of other musicians this year. And in the last, well, literally 24 hours, we've we've learned about the death of Robbie Shakespeare, of Simon Robbie great, fame. Great so Robbie Shakespeare. The great Robbie Shakespeare, the, the, the bass player in that, in reggae's greatest yeah. rhythm section, really. I mean, well, one of reggae's greatest rhythm One of them. Because there were a few of them. You know? Sure, absolutely. Um, I saw him playing behind Lee Perry, very odd. So, so this is quite a few years yeah. back. Um, apparently they almost didn't play because they were hold, um, Sly and Robbie were holding out for more money from the promoter up to the very last minute. But they were just there, being there that night. I and mean, Lee Perry was a joke. He was just like stumbling around the stage and kind of shouting at the microphone in a sort of very random way. The rhythm section were electrifyingly good. They're just, just, just that pulse that they produced. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I loved Sly and Robbie for the, from the first time I heard them playing. I don't know what it would have been, like a Gregory Isaacs record or something. I'm not sure. We're running a piece that Don Snowden wrote for the LA Times in August 1982. Mm-hmm. And there's just a couple of lovely quotes, actually Sly Dunbar talking about Robbie. We put our little thing into reggae. It's still the same feel, but we help move it from being the one style all the time. A lot more can be done to the music. And me and Robbie sometimes like to take a chance to make a certain sound. And he says, when we started playing, that sound just came, that certain lock-in between the bass and drums. The kind of line that Robbie plays always corresponds with the kind of drums I play. His bass sounds big and full, and all the others sound tinny and small. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's what, 82, so that's around the time when they're doing all that glorious work with Grace Jones. Exactly. So the year after... Uh, That that was like 80, 81, 82, that sort of stuff. Private Lives being the first big, big hit. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the, it being Grace Jones, therefore not technically a reggae artist. So it's not reggae music at all they're playing. No. They're playing some extraordinary Afro-Caribbean dance groove. Funk, with Bahar- funk a bit group, of New yes. York and a yes. bit of Jamaica yeah. sort of merged together. And at the time, it was absolutely... It was a revelation. I'm, I was Porter at BBC at the time, and Private Lives had come on the radio. And there's a bit where Sly Dunbar hits the snare and a cymbal on the second beat of the bar at the end of a fill rather than the, yes. the first yeah. beat. And we'd mime it, sort of like... like um, uh, <laughs> In the air tonight. You know, we, yes. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, more... No, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> but we'd all sort of just roll around the kit and bash at the end of it. Yeah. Um, In the air tonight. <laughs> it, was, it, it, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic time for singles because things like Laurie Anderson's Oh Superman came out around very much the same time. Mm-hmm. It, it was it a was very, very good little stretch that. But yeah, slightly... Such a Robin. distinctive sound yeah. they, they come up with, you know, from, yeah. you know, it's, especially on the Grace Jones yeah. album, Pull Up to the Bumper, My Jamaican yeah. Guy. Oh, and the way they use kind of yeah. syndromes. Yeah. In, in the more in straight reggae, yeah. I mean, the, bla- the early Black Uhuru stuff, the first two or three Black Uhuru albums, they're absolutely fantastic on that. I also just want to note the passing of a writer, not one of our writers, to our regret. We'd love to have got him on board. We did we did try, but the black New York writer Greg Tate, yes, Greg yeah. Iron Man Tate, who who died a couple of days ago. Um Sad loss. Yeah, I mean, a fantastic writer. We've added a piece by Michael A. Gonzalez, a homage to Greg, written in 2007. Right. And it's a, it's just a it's a kind of love letter to the influence that Greg yeah. had on him and so many other writers, yeah. black and white writers. And his most famous sort of book was Flyboy in the Buttermilk. Um, <laughs> but he wrote a, a Hendrix biography and was a great character. You yeah. know, he, he had this term Freaky Deke, D-E-K-E, which was his term. He wrote a piece for The Village Voice in the early 80s where he kind of identified himself as a freaky deke, mm-hmm. which was which was someone who wrote about rock as well as yes. as, as as funk, R and B, hip hop, and of course he was instrumental in the formation of the Black Rock Coalition yeah. with Vernon Reid and all Oh right, no, so no, he was yeah, you know he was very much in that kind of you know. Hendrix, Sly Stone, hip hop. You know, I'm I'm not gonna just write about yeah the one thing black American music. You know, fantastic. I'm really guy. sad that we haven't got his stuff on the side. Well, maybe we can we can try. But Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you know, many people have been writing tributes in in in, in the last like 48 hours to great. Six, I love it. Same age as me. That's really depressing. Yeah, I love that piece that we're featuring by Michael Gonzalez where he sort of says the first time that Greg Tate ever acknowledged and liked one of his articles. Greg Tate, I can't believe it, he liked yes. my article. Yes. Fran <laughs> stared at me as though I was nuts. Grinning like a fool, I hope that nobody saw my silly ass losing my mind. It was crazy, but for that exact moment I felt like a true writer. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, that's, that is beautiful and it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a very sad loss. Yeah. He was a wonderful writer. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, you... Norman would have seen just 
in addition to the, the musical changes that we talked about, the, the changes in writing about music, the evolution of mm. music journalism, oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, which continues to evolve. And, and I don't know whether you, you probably, I don't know whether you would have read Greg Tate in, in the Village Voice or things like that, but do have you kept abreast of the way music writing has evolved? Not particularly. The stuff that I started out with, which was, you know, really just straight ahead pop, pop writing, yeah, yeah. if you like, that, as you know, started to started to change and expand around about 66, yeah. 67, yeah. that sort of time. And I, I sort of, I, I just felt that the kind of stuff I was doing was, was, was really not quite up to it because, it, you know, it, it wasn't hip anymore. And of course, you know, you want to be here. But you were a hip writer. I mean, there was a hipness to your approach to writing. I mean, you may not have been, you know, Richard Meltzer. But there was a hipness. I mean, I think of you as the first British writer who, who brought a kind of just a hip edge to your appreciation of things like rhythm and blues. Perhaps it was my age and I was... Yeah. When I was doing it, there were there weren't for a couple of years there weren't any other writers of my age working on any of the papers so I sort of had that advantage and you know what it's like if you're like 17, 18, 19 you sort of know what's happening yes you know you know you've got that thing you've got that antenna and you and you and you just feel what's happening you know you're in the zeitgeist yeah Mm. also Uh, what you you were writing about a slightly niche subject which gives you a sort of the hit thing on on top of that because Mm. If everyone else is writing about the Springfields or whoever, and you know it's chart pop and so on and so forth, they are. It's what it is. It's part of the, they're part of the promotional arm of the music business. Oh, to, I to, did plenty of those as well. Yeah, but yeah. Mainly, yeah. It's, mainly it's Wesley Lane, I think. Well, I tried. <laughs> I tried to shunt all that ideas. into Wesley's corner. But, uh, <laughs> yes. I wasn't always able to do it's so. It's kind of like yeah. your relationship with Wesley. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Where did you first meet? <laughs> <laughs> that is funny but yeah. you mentioned in your book there's a funny moment where you say you're getting slightly miffed that other young people were coming into the game and writing about music oh I wasn't I wasn't miffed about it okay uh, it was just that I saw what was happening and I thought yeah you know and, and yeah. of course it was nice to have those people at press receptions because you could live off press reception at that <laughs> yes. time you know I mean I think Richard Green did live off press reception <laughs> yeah, the bees the bees time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, so it was nice to have people, you know, of, of a similar age, same age that you could yeah. talk to. Richard must have been older than you, though, was he? Was he, was he about the same age? Uh, he's a bit older than me, yeah. yeah, a bit older, but he didn't act it, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Yeah, especially when he was under the table. Well, well, yeah, 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 he, he, went to, he went upstairs and he was invited to interview Bob Dylan and got so drunk that he had no memory of a single word Bob Dylan had said during the entire sort of three hours. Not so ideal, yes. Not <laughs> ideal. <laughs> We've come to the point in the show where Mark's going to talk us through some of the pieces that he's added, and Jasper may also chip him. And if you hear anything that, that prompts you to, to, to say something about this artist or that artist, please just jump in. OK. And, yeah. Um, well, from last week, Maureen Cleave we've had on board for a while, but only, I've only gained access to her evening stand stuff relatively recently, and it is astonishing. It's very sophisticated writing, going right back. This is Phil Spector, 1964, she interviews Phil Spector, and he says, The records are built up like a Wagner opera. They start simply and they end with dynamic force, meaning and purpose. 
And then he also says, I'm the least quoted man in the industry. I stick to my little bourgeois haunts and I don't bother with the masses. So it's a classic full spectrum. I mean, you, you met Spectre, didn't oh, yeah, you? Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, wrote Spectre, about yeah. him. And that would kind of... <laughs> you talk about <laughs> his, his paranoia. Absolutely. And I think you hint at his mm. grandiosity. How, when, mm. when, did you, when did you meet he him? Came to, he was brought to the record mirror office. Yeah. Like Eric yeah. Clapton. <laughs> well, I met him around at Dehem's. And oh, it, was, right. it was one Saturday and Phil didn't like everybody looking at him. So we went up to Record Mirror, there was nobody there. And, but like chatting to him was like chatting to you guys. It's like he was, he was really into the music. Right. And, yes. uh, yeah. and that was that. And of course, he was, Andrew was, was, was getting very close to, to, to Phil. In fact, Andrew was kind of hero worshipped uh, Phil, yes. uh, which was strange with Andrew because he wasn't the hero worshipping mm-hmm. type. No. But, and then I bumped into Phil again. Well, I didn't bump into him. I was at a press reception for Benny King about a week or so later and uh, Andrew was there and I'm interviewing Ben nobody else wanted to interview him and I'm interviewing Ben talking to Ben talking to him about Rudy Lewis actually oh. and uh, Andrew came rushing out of this room at Decca dragged me in and Phil's there face like thunder he's well miffed because Edward Lewis has, in New York has taken a tape of the latest Crystal single, which was Little Boy, which was a pretty terrible record mm. for the Crystals. And Phil was saying, I, you know, what am I going to do? Why is he doing this? You know, the record's going to be a flop. It will be the end of the Crystals. So Andrew and I, blah, 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 and we said, well, why don't you put out Uptown, which has never been out as a single, nice record. Oh, my God. Bit more Lieber Stoller yeah. than, 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 than Phil. So, so we said, well, you know, why not put out, you know, Uptown and, and you know, shove it up on the outside. And Phil said, yeah, yeah, great. So they did that and they pressed, pressed some and they sent them out. But Phil, meanwhile, had gone back to New York and on the same plane as the Beatles, I think, when they actually yes. went over on that first promotional visit. And uh, there was a song there that I believe Greenwich and Barry had written right. called I Wonder. And Phil thought that was good, recorded that withdrew the uptown thing and uptown was uh, that great. was that uptown yeah. was fabulous yeah that's, right, the yeah, flight, than that, that, that's the flight back to new york there he claims that he produced all the beatles stuff in that rory car interview we wrote around that oh, really it's fantastic yeah. phil all over yeah. you know, he says well you know i produced all the beatles early hits George Martin was just the arranger. I mean, you saw me get off that plane in New York with the Beatles. Well, I've been there producing all their singles. I mean, it's marvellous stuff, you know. But then he comes up, down he jeans into my tenement. Up, down we're both so happy to pay my trend. And when he's there with me, he can see that he's everything. 1968 enemy June Harris interviews Gary Puckett of the Union Gap. I'm always quite intrigued by this sort of the the, the time when rock is becoming rock capital R. There's still these kind of really big pop bands like Gary mm. Puckett and the Union Gap. I just read that slightly tedious autobiography by Tommy James of Shondell's fame. Um, and he's another, they're another one, like, like Gary Puckett, Tommy yes. James. You know, the, 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 these, he says, we're not interested into any of that psychedelic stuff. We're not interested in it. It's not for us anyway. I know it's fashionable right now to wear flared military jackets. We do it to be authentic more than fashionable. 
says, you know, not every group out of California has to look like the Grateful Dead or sound like Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> well, that's all fair that's enough. Fair point. And, and then he recalls Crimson and Clover. <laughs> which, is, which is a great pop record. Yeah. <laughs> and Crystal Blue <laughs> Persuasion. Yeah, because they're, yeah, they're not joking. Nothing records. to do with no, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Whatever made you think that. Um, very nice to have a, a, a brief interview with Carol Grimes on the site, because we don't have enough on her, partly because she wasn't interviewed a great deal. This is when she's with Delivery. Peter Jones interviewing her for Record Mirror 1970, and she says, Now it's okay for girls to stomp around without being regarded as raging lesbians. The important thing is not to go too far. (laughs) (laughs) Because then you'll be mistaken for a raging lesbian. (laughs) Uh, uh, Lorraine Altman for Rolling Stone 1974 interviews Clive Davis. He's just in the process of being resurrected. He had been fired by CBS for that corruption, but it's like payola thing. What, why was Clive Davis... Set? I can't actually he remember, did. to be honest. With I was you, actually a, a, a working in the press office at CBS at that time. Were you? Oh, yeah. Yes, you And, were. oh, the meetings they had about Clive. Oh, he, was my God. Big, he was the big cheese. That's right. Yes. Uh, well, uh, I know one of the things was he'd, 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 he'd put his son's bar mitzvah on expenses. <laughs> uh, <laughs> didn't it. everyone do that? <laughs> I'm sure Morris yeah, Levy yeah, but it's expensive. Expensive, it's only like hundred thousands yeah. above its You know, yeah. maybe. I, I think mainly it was it was giving artists lots and lots of money to buy drugs. Right. Yes. Well, well given that he was the, working closely with the likes of Sly Stone, well, well, he had much of choice. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, this is interesting because he's just joined. Who was it? He joined he, he, a company who owned Buddha, I think it was, who he turned into Arista. Right. So it's before Arista, but he's just taking the reins of what will become Arista. Yes. Uh, and he's very full of himself. I'm back, you know. Um, back, Because yeah, Arista, um, was it, did it launch in 75? Because, I mean, Horses, of course, was a, oh, yes. improbably it, on Arista. But that was 75, um, yeah, yeah. He, he says to Lorraine, he says, I'm into talent wherever the talent is. I must be surrounded by people who live, eat and breathe the record business, you know. You, uh, I, I used to hear hilarious stories. I mean, there's... We got a story on the site somewhere about him doing playing the new Prince album to journalists, oh. and he's dancing. Oh, I was there. He, you were there, and he was, dan- he was dancing on the stage to it. Yeah, it was at the Mermaid Theatre, <laughs> and basically Clive introduced it. There was a little kind of podium, and Clive introduced it, and then says, "Right, so we're going to hear the album." And you sort of assume he's going to go and like sit down in the front row or whatever, but he doesn't, he stays there. And throughout the playback, he's kind of sort of doing this at, at the podium. And everyone's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Moving swiftly on. Um, Gary Newman's uh, album reviewed by Paul Morley in 1981, The Enemy. And he said, he was never, though, as he'd like to think, a leader, capital A, capital L. No one of any worth will be influenced by a Gary Newman, despite his best wishes. Newman can filter and exploit past noises as sensibly, even as surprisingly as anyone, but he'll never be an original. Which is brutal, but sort of broadly true. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he wasn't an original. I mean, no. he, he, he nicked so much from and, and Bowie. Of, the, of, that electro, of that electro generation, he was the least original of that generation of electro artists yeah. in the Human League and so on and so forth. Well, some know. of those records now do have a certain kind of cult status, yeah. don't they? I mean, like mm. Nine Inch Did you see that documentary so on him? He actually no. came over all sweet. He's yeah. very autistic. He's yeah, autistic he, 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 he married his fan club president and they've got seemed like a rather nice sort of situation with nice kids and all that. 
Yeah. And he's, he's, he's quite sweet, but yeah. can't say I've listened. Right, let's move into the this week. Again, Maureen Cleave interviewing Burt Bacharach for Stad in 64. He said, I prefer to write for the coloured voice. There's more tension in it. With tension. Uh, he says, I'm a very dramatic person as far as music goes. I don't like things that are flat or dull, either in music or right down the line. You mentioned Bert in your book. Mm. And, I, and if my memory is correct, you go to his hotel suite. You hadn't had time to kind of change into a suit. You were, you were, you were, you were in your own was looking quite scruffy. And Bert, yeah. you come into yeah, Bert's yeah. Bert hotel room and he's looking immaculate, of course, and he sort of looks rather disdainful. He was a little bit, he was a little bit sniffy about it. It was actually at the music publisher's office. So, uh, okay. uh, and uh, I went with uh, I went with Barry May, who was who was. Uh, he was working at Record Mirror at that time, and we did a, you know, we did a joint interview with Bert, who actually was fine after mm. a while. Once he got over your clothing. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well I wasn't apologised profusely. Well, I would normally wear suits for work, but for mm. that day, for some reason, you know, I was in jeans and a leather jacket or, or whatever. Shame on you. Yeah. Shame on me. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, anyway. Yeah, I'm noticing you're not wearing a, a Savile Row suit today. Uh, no. We are, we are, we are disappointed. <laughs> it's, 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 I, Charlie would have. I should really go and. His his suits wouldn't fit me, unfortunately. I'd I'd sort of be round there, you know. Got any spare suits there? (laughs) Keith Richards, interviewed by Victor Bockris for High Times in 1970. Perfect for this episode. This is I never turned blue in somebody else's bathroom. I consider that the height of bad manners. (laughs) (laughs) Up until the middle 60s, the most obvious method of rock and roll death was chartered planes. (laughs) <laughs> I love that I like, kind of the etiquette of heroin. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. Even being busted, it certainly isn't boring. I think boring is the worst thing of all, you know. Anything but boring. So best to be busted than be bored. Moving on to 84, Johnny Marr, interviewed by Hugh Fielder for Sounds. He says, I don't like video games, but if it was a choice between that and a new Visage album, I'd get the video game. <laughs> 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 That's my lot. Jasper, Barney, what have you guys got? I've got a, a couple of things to mention, as always. First of which is a nice light-hearted interview by Precious Williams in the Evening Standard on the 1st of June 2001 with one 15-year-old Lisa Roxanne, who was at that point kind of being touted as, like... South London's answer to Beyonce and I think made one single and never anything else but it's rather sweet this interview list three things you'd abolish from London life answer rain, racism and boring people and three things you'd make compulsory for Londoners to say hello to each other in the street to dress funky and to give money to the homeless just that it's nice <laughs> funny little snapshot of My London my by Lisa Roxanne yeah. Next up, The New Mellow Snoop Dogg Still Has Bite by Sophie Hayward in The Times on the 4th of December 2009. And this is kind of an interesting point for Snoop Dogg. It's kind of his, his image is starting to shift from, you know, gangster to what he is now, which is almost like national treasure on TV with Martha Stewart kind of, kind of vibe. <laughs> he, he tells me about his plans to open a chain of snooper markets, which will presumably <laughs> offer <laughs> money off snoopons on his own. Range of cuppa snoops. I'm fairly sure you could challenge this man to a bout of apple bobbing and he'd come out looking more fabulous than the Fonz. But he also says, now that I'm more concerned and caring and a father and a husband, it just seems like the nicer I get, the less respect I get. Which is interesting to hear him say because yeah, yeah. He, he actually has 
successfully become someone who you know seems actually like a really decent guy even though there are some pretty nasty rumors about what he did to various people that crossed him early on so it's it's always interesting i'm very i'm very i mean i I love his voice the sound of the sound of him rapping even though sometimes what he raps is uh a bit questionable in terms of misogyny, <laughs> but you know, the, just the sound of his voice. Sophie Hayward points out in this in this article as well. He just has a voice like nobody yeah, else. Yeah. It's, it's mellifluous and gritty and, and wonderful. I just I, yeah, I love yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm putting out the blunt because I say that I need you more in my life than I need a bag of weed. Now I compare you to a bird when she fly by. I wanna rock you back to sleep like Betty Bye Bye. Bouncing the lack with your hand on my lap, throw your bags in the back. I'ma show you where it's at. Ain't no telling if we Lastly, Center of Chaos Commons Electric Circus, Michael A. Gonzalez in the Red Bull Academy magazine uh, in March 2015. And this is, uh, he's looking back on the rapper Commons album Electric Circus, which is again a really interesting album because it's at a point when the Soul Quarians, like, you know, um, uh, Questlove's kind of circle of, sure. of, of musicians um, D'Angelo, Jay Diller, Roy Hargrove Talib Kweli, Bilal Q-Tip, you know all these people are coming together to, to do stuff that goes beyond hip hop and, and through jazz and kind of just doing all these interesting things and actually Greg Tate is quoted in it, the impact of the Soul Quarians was about who they brought on I liked him as a rapper, but Common wasn't exactly pushing any envelopes before Quest brought him into the Soulquarian circle of progressive music. So it's, it's 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 worth a read just for an insight into that scene and, and into Common, uh, who I think is actually a really interesting and underrated rapper still. Yeah, yeah. Did he put out an album called Light Water for Chocolate? Was he that did, a movie? Yes. Yeah, I do. I do remember liking that very much. What have you got? I've got. It's time for the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic article. Actually, do you know, I thought what I just have left very lost is we didn't mention this when we were talking about Robbie Shakespeare and Greg Tate, but we have also lost John Miles oh, of music sake. fame. And I thought we should probably note this. So we've add, we've made freely available a Harry Doherty piece from 1976 um, in Melody Maker. Yeah. Um, he, he do you remember that? Record music. Yes, music I do. was my I do. first love. Yeah, my yeah. mistress. Yeah. My I hated. It, I hated it then. We played it then. The office. I hated, I hated it all over again. It was possible. He, he was also heavily involved in the Alan Parsons project, wasn't he? That's right. John exactly. I thought he was an utter mediocrity from you know the get go. <laughs> so this is our paying tribute <laughs> to John Miles. Uh, no, I mean it, it's one of those kind of R.I.P. Yeah, I know, I know. Yes or not? Or not? I mean, sorry, John, but it is one of those records from the seventies that he does just make you cringe horribly yeah. there's lots of kitschy records from the 70s that I kind of love like All By Myself by Eric Carmen but music by John Miles partly because it's, it's about music yes. and it's, it's awful so music about music yes music about music <laughs> yeah. it, it yeah. was my first love but not anymore after listening to this record yeah I know exactly <laughs> exactly you might miss you would have been in New York at that time also. maybe you just missed music by Norm by, no no by I remember I remember that record yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but wasn't the one before a bit better, the hit that he had? It was a, a disco-y thing. I can't was remember. It? Oh. It, it was a hit. It's I mean, time for us to rediscover I, John I, Miles. I bet my DJ friends have dug it, have yes. them, dug it out. It's probably crates. a Balearic no, no, It's favorite. become a massive Balearic <laughs> favourite. Yes. <laughs> anyway, it is time to wrap up and, and to thank you so much for coming yeah, all the way yeah. from Muswell Hill yes. to be with us today. Well, well thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank, thank you. you. It's, been, it's been, been really been huge fun. And, and just can I recommend to anyone listening Norman's great book, Shake It Up, Baby. 
exclamation mark, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the subtitle is Notes from a Pop Music Reporter, 1961 to 1972. It's sort of, the print version is no longer available, uh, but I'm, uh, I'm talking with an American publisher at the moment who may be putting it out again, quite likely. Hope so. Uh, unfortunately... Amazon have still got the uh, the Kindle version, which they sh- really shouldn't have up there. I, I mean, I shouldn't really go into this, but dealing with Amazon is a complete nightmare if you want to get something taken down. What, what's a shocking thing to hear? Yeah, I've, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've actually got my my union, the Society of Authors, there onto it now. So, oh, good. Because <laughs> I, I just just going around in circles so for everything Amazon. they've got. I yes, yes, yes. Also, yes. Like, like, <laughs> you describe yourself as a reporter because uh, Mike John, who's uh, New York, used to write for the New York Times in the sort of late sixties. He says, I wasn't a critic, I was a reporter. Sure, yeah. sure. You yeah. know, yeah. and he ended up, he had a massive row with Kreisgau, and it was, that, that was part of the thing. But, but anyway, yeah, Mike Chan saying, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a critic, I was a reporter. But yeah, it's, that's it's a, a great, it's a great yeah. word. Thank you. Reporter, so. And well, it's a great honour to have. Oh, so oh, when oh, it's oh. republished, go out and buy it, because it's really lovely. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have my copy in the office here, so if anyone wants to... You know, make me like a very generous offer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can get it, I can, a signed copy. I can probably provide. Um, I would like you to sign it actually. Normally, split, anyway, split it fifty-fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, fantastic. Um, so we will be back for the next episode with the American writer Holly George Warren. And until then, we would like to say goodbye. And Mark, you're going to talk us out with well, it's the last uh, it's Charlie Watts's drug and drink hell. <laughs> <laughs> happy notes, <laughs> as on always. A, on a yeah. happy note, yeah. brilliant. Thanks. Well, bye. 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 <laughs> remember I tried these things that I'd never done before, ever. Like what? Heroin. Oh, yes. Okay, I understand, yes. Yes, I tried it a couple and of you times. Can, you can, like it? Yeah. You can take heroin and uh, nothing happens, and then all of a sudden you you are hooked on it, you know. And I was a real minor little thing, you know. I really stopped like that, you know. I stopped it all myself, but I could see that I was... I used to look like Dracula. And I used to take speed all the time. So I'd live three days and sleep two. Live three. And you don't look too good at the end of that. Charlie Watts in conversation with Robin Egar in 1997, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to her special guest Norman Jopling. Keep an eye out for his book, Shake It Up Baby. Please note that this episode was recorded before the death of Mike Nesmith, so we'll be paying tribute to him in the next episode. The host are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rockspackpages.com. Music was my first love And it will be my last Music of the future